Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 21, 1 Samuel, chapter 14. As we uh, <clears throat> continue in Samuel, chapter 14 today, we will reread a major portion of this chapter in a few minutes since it's long and involved and we won't even finish it today. Now, the scene that is unfolding is of King Saul's first war with the Philistines. But we also see this uneasy relationship that Saul has with his son, Yehonatan. Right? And how this is going to play out over several years, especially as the young David becomes identified as the Lord's Naid, the prince, the king in waiting to replace Shaul at the right moment. At Gilgal, Saul was accepted by Israel as their first king. And the very reason that the people initially wanted a king quickly became his primary vocation. Saul would immediately lead Israel in defense from an enemy from the east, the nation of Ammon. And now in chapter 14, he would lead the tribes against an old and formidable enemy from the west, the Philistines. Now the Philistines had established a number of forts and encampments in Canaan, primarily in the central hill country called the Mountains of Ephraim. And one such place was Saul's hometown, Gibeah, more, pronouncedly, more correctly pronounced Geba, all right, in his tribal territory of Benjamin. And then there was another outpost uh, established in a more a remote location called uh, Michmash. And this, there was this important strategic pass from the Jordan River Valley to the Mediterranean Sea coast that is going to become the focal point of the battle described here in chapter 14. Michmash was perched high on the north side of this pass, which was essentially, by the way, just a, a ravine all right, uh, formed by a wadi, a dry riverbed. On the opposite side was Israelite-controlled Geba. Now Saul had marched his, which is different from Geba. Okay, this is Geba. Now, Saul marched his 600 men from Gilgal to Geba when the story commences. And we find Saul lollygagging about near a pomegranate tree that he had made his field headquarters. Now I say lollygagging about because it's apparent that Saul wasn't quite sure what he planned on doing. And so what we're about to see is his son, Yohanatan, take the initiative to bring an end to this decisiveness of his indecisiveness of his father Right? and instead to force a confrontation with the enemy. Now, this is not the first time Jonathan got sick and tired of waiting for his father, the king, to do something and not just talk about it. 
When Saul couldn't seem to generate enough enthusiasm to get the Israelites to join with him in sufficient force to confront the, the Philistine threat, Jonathan solved the problem by assassinating the Philistine governor who was stationed in Geba. Now this act had its desired effect because it so outraged the Philistine leadership that they stepped up their level of oppression upon Israel to a point that even the most reluctant Israeli clan and tribal leaders couldn't find an excuse any longer to sit it out. Their personal freedom was now in danger of evaporating. An unflattering picture of Saul has been emerging. And I'm sorry to say the picture is very much like the stereotype of a modern politician. He talked a good game, but he wouldn't act unless there was sufficient personal benefit that at the same time minimized any personal risk. He purported to be the leader of Israel, but generally just observed where the parade was already headed and then he grabbed the baton and ran to the front to take the credit. His courage was measured primarily by the level of support from those who agreed with him. It melted quickly if he felt the opposition was too great. And while at times he ordered the people to scrupulously obey the law of Moses or bear the consequences, he played fast and loose with Jehovah's commandments and felt he was generally above the law. Samuel's outward demeanor of bombast and bravado masked an inward insecurity, timidity, and general lack of character. Everything that God demanded of a king, Saul couldn't deliver. But of course the Lord knew that. Because that was at the heart of the reason that he chose Saul in the first place. Saul was not only stereotypical of modern politicians, but also of the Middle Eastern kings and small-time potentates of that era. King Shaul was exactly what those tribal leaders of Israel had in mind as the model of a monarchy that they felt sure was going to solve all their problems. This was the change they sought. Now, as we pick up our story today, Jonathan knows that his father is going to do nothing until his hand is forced, and so simply could no longer accept this frustrating idleness in the face of the Philistines arrogantly setting up yet another outpost on Israelite land. So, without consulting his father, the brave Yohanan took his armor-bearer with him and challenged the Philistines to do battle. Let's begin by rereading this chapter at verse 8. We're going to reread Samuel 14, starting at verse 8, page 311 in your complete Jewish Bibles. Yohanan said, Here, we'll cross over to those men and let them know we're there. If they say, Wait till we come up to you, we'll stand there where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll go up. And that will be the sign that Adonai has given victory over them. 
So both of them let their presence be known to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, some Hebrews coming out of the holes they've been hiding in. And then the men of the garrison said to Yohanan and his armor bearer, Come up to us. We want to show you something. Yohanan told his armor bearer, Come on up after me, because Adonai has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands as well as his feet with his armor bearer behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed him, following him finished them off. The first slaughter of about 20 men was accomplished by Jonathan and his armor bearer in a space only about half as long as one side of the area a pair of oxen could plow in a day. There was panic in the field camp among all the Philistines. Likewise, the garrison and the raiding party panicked. Besides all this, there was an earthquake. Thus it grew into panic caused by God. Shaul's men on watch and Givat Benjamin could see the enemy camp scattering and running in all directions. Shaul ordered the forces with him to call the roll and see who was missing. So they called the roll. And they found Jonathan and his armor bearer weren't present. Shaul told Ahiah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the people of Israel. But while Shaul was talking to the Kohen, the priest, the uproar in the camp of the Philistines continued and it kept getting louder. And Shaul said to the priest, put your hand down. And Shaul and the entire force with him assembled and went to battle, and they found, but they found the Philistines all fighting each other in utter confusion. The Hebrews from the surrounding countryside who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them into the camp deserted and went over to Israel and with Shaul and Yohanan. Likewise, on hearing that the Philistines were fleeing, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hills of Ephraim pursued them in battle. So Adonai saved Israel that day, and the battle spread as far as bet Now Israel's soldiers had been driven to exhaustion that day. But Saul issued the warning to the people. A curse on any man who eats food until evening when I have finished taking vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people even tasted food. Now the people came to a forest where there was a honeycomb on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, they saw the honeycomb with honey dripping out, but no one put his hand to his mouth because the people feared the oath. But Jonathan hadn't heard his father charging the people with the oath, so he put out the end of his staff in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he raised it to his mouth, whereupon his eyes lit up. But one of the people said in response, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, a curse on any man who eats any food today, even though the people are fainting with hunger. And Yohanan answered, My father has brought trouble to the land. Just look how my eyes have lit up because I tasted a little of this honey. How much greater would the slaughter of the Pilishtim have been today then if the people had eaten freely of the spoil they had found with their enemies? Now that day they had attacked the the Philistines from Michmash to Ayalon. But the people were very exhausted. So the people rushed at the spoil, seizing sheep and cows and calves and slaughtering them on the ground and eating the flesh with the blood. And Shaul was told, Look how the people are sinning against Adonai eating with the blood. He said, You have not kept faith. Roll a big stone to me immediately. Now, Shaul said, Go around among the people and tell them, Each of you is to bring his cow and his sheep and slaughter them here. Then eat. Don't sin against Adonai by eating with the blood. 
So each person brought his animal with him that evening and killed it there. And Shaul erected an altar to Adonai. It was the first altar that he erected to Adonai. And Saul said, let's go after the Philistines by night. We'll plunder them until dawn. We won't leave one of them alive. And they answered, do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, let's approach God here. Saul consulted God. Should I go down in pursuit of the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But he didn't answer him that day. Saul said, Come here, all you heads of the people. Now think carefully. Who has committed this sin today? For as Adonai, uh, for as Adonai Israel's deliverer lives, even if it proves to be Jonathan, my own son, he must be put to death. But no one among the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, Okay, you be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. But the people replied to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Saul said to Adonai, the God of Israel, Who is right? Jonathan and Saul were chosen by Lot, and the people went free. Shaul said, Cast lots now between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was chosen. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you did. And Jonathan told him, Yes, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff in my hand, so here I am, ready to die. And Saul said, May God do the same to me, and more also, if you're not put to death, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Heaven forbid! As Adonai lives, not wire and hair of his head will fall to the ground, because he worked with God today. In this way, the people rescued Jonathan so that he didn't die. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines returned to their own territory. So, Shaul took over the rulership of Israel. He fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the people of Ammon, Edom, the kings of uh, Sophah, and the Pilishtim. No matter which way he turned, he defeated them. He demonstrated his strength by attacking Amalek, and he saved Israel from the power of those who were plundering them. The sons of Shaul were Yohanatan, Yishvi, and Malkishua. And while the names of his two daughters were these, the, the name of the older, Merav, and the name of the young, younger, Michal. Shaul's wife was named Akinoam, the, son of, uh, the, the daughter of Akim Maetz. The commander of the army was named Abner, the son of Ner, Shaul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul. Ner was the father of Avner, who was the son of Abiel. As long as Saul lived, there was bitter war against the Pilishtim. Whenever Shaul saw any strong or courageous man, he recruited him into his service. You know, we're reminded of David's encounter with Goliath as we read of Jonathan's faith and certainty that if the Lord wants Israel delivered, it doesn't matter whether it's accomplished by the means of two men or 2,000. Numbers just don't matter. Now, the idea was this. Yohanatan and his servant, here called an armor bearer, would see how the Philistines responded to their provocation. 
And if the Philistine soldiers say, stay there until we come down to you, then that's what they'll do. And if they say, come on up towards us, then this will be a sign from God, so they'll believe it and go to them. Now I have to tell you, if we were there at that time, I'm not sure how many of us would regard Jonathan's plan as good and commendable faith, or as a suicidal and brash attempt to test God by a couple of guys suffering from a testosterone rush. (laughs) My nature is such that not only would I probably not take Jonathan's approach, but if I was that armor bearer, I'd ask for an immediate transfer. (laughs) But sort of hidden here is a lesson for us all about how the Lord makes use of those who inhabit His kingdom and trust Him in all things. In many ways, you know, Jonathan was just like his father, Saul. He was impetuous. He was kind of a show-off. He was hot-tempered. He was rash. But the difference is, that Jonathan was as unselfish as Saul was selfish and as noble as Saul was base. Jonathan was as determined in his faith and belief in God's power and wisdom and ability to deliver as Saul was determined that he would manipulate the Lord for his own purposes and risk nothing. we see how two men of essentially the same temperament and personality can at the same time be so opposite in their natures. Saul was being used by the Lord to show us everything that a leader in the kingdom of God should not be. Jonathan was a demonstration of what can happen when a person focuses on God and not on his circumstances. King Saul was led by his own lusts and desires and his inner demons. Jonathan was led by the Holy Spirit. And despite the deep faults and the troublesome personality traits that characterized them both, their destinies were night and day apart due to a single, all-encompassing, personal choice that each had made at some point in their lives, would they or would they not obey the Lord at all costs? Now, Yohanan and his anonymous servant, have, having agreed on this daring strategy, walk out into the open and they make their presence known. One can only imagine the surprise of these Philistine soldiers as these two lonely Hebrews stood there shouting at them. I mean, the startled soldiers were were, were stationed on a, a promontory where they could see a few miles, a couple of miles probably at least, in, in, in most directions. And it was obvious to them that these two foolish fellows were either drunk or stupid. Maybe both. Because indeed there were no other fellow Israelites in sight. Now I'm not quite sure what to make out of these two. Probably 
they weren't just a little bit suspicious of this thing. They weren't about to crawl down from their rather safe perch overlooking this dry riverbed. So in typical Middle Eastern fashion, they begin shouting back and boasting and challenging them to come up. Now I have no doubt that after a few minutes of heaping abuse on these Israelites that they had so little regard for, they figured they'd had their fun, it was all over, and so they relaxed. But the words of those Philistines were the signal, the sign that Jonathan had hoped for. So convinced was he that the Lord was now firmly on his side and that the unction he felt to undertake this excursion was of divine origin. That he and his armor bearer crawled stealthily up the north face of the ravine in a very steep part where those Philistine soldiers would not never have expected them to show up. And when they got to the top, it turned out to be an extremely narrow area that the Bible describes as the length of a rather standard furrow that an ox team could plow in a day, but only about half as wide. This meant they were practically in a long, narrow tunnel. Probably only one Philistine soldier at a time could even fight against Jonathan. So Jonathan would disable a soldier, then he would move on to the next, while his armor bearer would finish them off in turn. Now understand, Jonathan had no idea when he hatched this brazen plot that the terrain was going to be so beneficial that a two-man team could effectively fight off a much larger company of enemy soldiers. Not only did his faith prove completely founded, but as, has, as, as happens with most worshipers of God, one successful step of faith leads to the next. And sometimes a bolder step of faith. Now about 20 of the enemy were killed in this fight. And the yelling and the screaming and the commotion awakened the rest of the Philistine camp and they were certain they were under attack. Now having no idea that this attack was just the foray of two Hebrews, the substantial garrison of Philistine soldiers flew into a panic and to top it all off, there was an earthquake. All, right, all the more to accentuate the Lord's, the Lord's fingerprints were all over this operation. Now because the encampment of Saul was only about a mile or so away, and because some Israelite watchmen were set up in outposts so that they could spy on the Philistines at Mi'kmaq, they noticed all this confusion. And they saw the enemy running around seemingly disoriented, and they reported it to, to Saul. Now, only one cause for the stirring up of this ant's nest made any sense. Somebody, someone from his troops was over there unauthorized and had aroused the Philistines. King Saul immediately ordered a roll call. And sure enough, Jonathan and his armor bearer were missing. Saul, being aware of his son's spirit, didn't at all put it past him to attempt this sort of desperate undertaking on his own without permission. The mystery resolved 
the ever indecisive Saul now calls for his high priest, Ahiah, and told him to bring the ark of God. Now, exactly where the ark was at this time, we can't know for sure. However, the last we heard of it put its long-term home in a place called Kiryat Yarim, right, in the home of a priest. Now, however, very likely it was probably traveling with this group at the time. Even the reticent shawl wouldn't have waited for several days to address this emergency. It was, it was actually usual that the ark was carried to the site of the battle. So it's, it's hard to imagine that, that, that Saul would have allowed it to remain in Kiryat Yarim. Now with one eye on the Philistine camp that was surging and scattering, and yet with his instinct, to consult God on the matter before before he acted tugging on him. Saul decided he just he just couldn't wait. And he loses patience and so the so as the high priest is in the process of seeking the Lord's favor, Saul interrupts him and he says, "Ah, put your hand down." What's going on? The high priest would have been using the Urim and Tumim to obtain divine answers to Saul's questions about what to do. The two stones kept inside this this special pocket of the high priest's ephod um, would have had the high priest putting his hand into the pocket to remove and then put the stones back as a means of inquiry. Now, as usual, Saul liked the idea of seeking the Lord on matters, but as often as not, had as much or more confidence in his own decisions. So he simply, prematurely, stopped the process of the high priest consulting God. So King Saul quickly assembles his troops. They race over to the camp of the Philistines to take advantage of this chaotic situation. And when he arrives, he finds that in the midst of the confusion the Philistines are actually fighting and killing one another. Now part of the reason that was happening was because some of the Israelite clan members who had cut their own deals with the Philistines and so were peacefully camping with them had now turned on their new buddies and started killing them. Now the Philistines didn't know who was enemy and who was friend. Not only that, but many of the Hebrews who had been in hiding saw the opportunity to decimate these Philistines and so they joined with Saul and his 600 and chased down and killed many of the fleeing enemy. So thanks to Jonathan's courage to obey the Lord and go forth in faith at great personal risk, it was a rout. And so that area, at least, was cleared of the Philistine, Philistine threat for, for a time. Now, you know, these battles of old were long affairs. When soldiers engaged in battle, it was usually until the sun set and nobody on either side could see well enough to continue. Stamina was every bit as important as ability, maybe more. Both sides eventually were exhausted, thirsty, and famished to the point of collapse. Blood sugar levels were critically low. Dehydration set in. And it was quite usual in those days to have warriors simply faint 
and be killed while they lay on the ground. Not, not injured, just unconscious. But Saul, who undoubtedly had multiple attendants not only protecting him, but supplying him with food and drink and time to rest, ordered his weary men to continue pursuing the Philistines until he was satisfied that the victory was total. Now Saul was, of course, yielding to yet another of his characteristic impulses. Although what his army needed most was some food and water and just a little bit of rest, he not only ordered them to continue without food or water, but also made them take a solemn oath, a vow before the Lord to not even taste of food until Saul allowed it. Or, as the super-selfish king put it, they weren't to eat again until I have finished taking vengeance on my enemies. Not Israel's enemies. Not God's enemies. This was, after all, holy war. My enemies. And but a couple of years on the throne, Saul has quickly adopted the attitude of a despot. His men were cannon fodder. And all wars were about his personal pride and status among the nations. Now while it's Difficult to understand any religious motive of Saul's to make the men take this oath not to eat without doubt in Saul's mind. Religion played a role. Very likely, he thought that this was some pious act on his part that would impress God and curry his favor. Now, stupid and rash and destructive as such a vow was, Middle Eastern resolve is such that even if he had come to his senses, Saul couldn't take it back without losing face and taking the sin of reneging the vow upon his own shoulders. The people, on the other hand, fully understood that even though they were, in a sense, forced into it, they had said, Amen to the oath. So now they were bound to it. This was a serious matter. Saul declared an oath with a divine curse attached to it and this meant that despite the irrational and the unwarranted nature of the oath, it was absolutely valid in all of its details and in its terms in the Lord's eyes. A God principle that goes all the way back to Exodus, Leviticus, and to the book of Judges teaches us that the Lord is not in the business of seeking vows and oaths from his people as a sign of their piousness. The New Testament has Yeshua advising against vows and oaths. Not because they were tradition or superstition or no longer in operation, but because they remained just as powerful and as much in effect as they did in the ancient days. However, if one chooses to make a personal vow or to join into a group vow, then one is obligated to follow through with it. Otherwise, the attached curse will be on their head. These Hebrew soldiers were in such awe 
of the Lord, that they risked their lives on the battlefield by continuing to fight in a weakened condition in order to obey the oath rather than risk antagonizing antagonizing Yehovah. You know, I wonder if that kind of fear and awe remains in us, his church. It ought to, but sadly a misguided Christian doctrine that sprang up sometime during the era of the early Roman church has endangered endangered millions of believers by saying that faith in Messiah means the end of our obligation to be obedient to God. And since there is no further need for obedience, any kind of breaking of the Lord's commandments is generally inconsequential. Yeshua made it clear that such a thing is patently absurd and he warned that it was much safer as a worshiper of the God of Israel to simply respond yes or no than to add an oath or a vow to anything since the Lord is going to expect us to do whatever it is we vowed. And this is because a vow inherently attaches God's name to our promise. And thus it puts His holy name and reputation at risk if He just turns a blind eye to the whole thing. Verse 25 explains that Saul's army entered a forested region where apparently many large colonies of bees lived. And there was honeycomb. Now honey, devash in Hebrew, was prized not only for its wonderful taste, but for its ability to revive a person who was in a famished, weakened condition by rapidly raising their blood sugar levels. Not unlike the way chocolate was used by our military in World War II. But as terribly as they needed it, and as marvelous a gift from heaven provided by the Father that it was, here we have Saul's vow prohibit the people from partaking of it. And so with great discipline, they passed it by and didn't so much as taste of it. But Jonathan had not heard of his father's rash command and so took advantage of his fortuitous find. Now one of the soldiers saw what Jonathan did and he told him about the oath against the army eating that his father had demanded and this infuriated him. And just as Saul well knew of his son's indomitable spirit and strong faith in Jehovah, so Jonathan well understood his father's bent on issuing morally reprehensible orders and ill-conceived commands on a whim. So Jonathan publicly denounces his father's ridiculous attitude and says that Saul has brought, brought trouble to the land. That in fact this oath had caused the Israelites to have much less of a victory over the Philistines than if they could have just been allowed to eat and regain their strength. One comment. While the soldiers 
were indeed duty-bound to this oath and would have suffered at God's hand had they transgressed it, Jonathan was not in the same position. He hadn't heard of the oath. He hadn't agreed to it. The Lord had providentially kept Jonathan busy elsewhere. So this had no effect on him. In verse 31, we get the key words, that day. That day, the people kept on fighting without ceasing, without food. And so when sunset came, they began to eat the captured domestic animals. Verse 24 said that the oath was a curse on any man who eats any food until evening. This is meaning the same day as the oath was taken. So the oath ended at sunset when the current day ended and a new day began. The narrator of 1 Samuel explains that they were so hungry that they slaughtered the animals on the ground and cut them up as they lay in pools of their own blood and then ate them. Now, the issue isn't that they ate the animals raw. They didn't. It's that they didn't properly drain the blood from the meat before cooking it. And thus they broke the commandment to refrain from eating blood. Leviticus 17.10 When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you eats any kind of blood, I will set myself against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. See, eating blood doesn't only mean to literally drink blood or to drain and store the blood and make some kind of food out of it. It also means that the meat must be properly and reasonably free of blood before cooking it. In fact, in ancient times, especially during the Second Temple era, enormous quantities of salt was used for this purpose as salt is a good absorbent of liquid. Anybody in Florida knows that? The blood-contaminated salt would then be thrown out into the roadways and pathways because it acted like a poison to kill the ground vegetation and keep, keep the pathways from being overgrown. We're given an example and an illustration of what happens with waste salt used in this manner in a well-known passage from the New Testament, Matthew 5.13. You are salt for the land. But if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except being thrown out for people to trample on. The reference to the salt being thrown out for people to trample on was literal. It was a common, everyday occurrence that served a very useful purpose for the nation's network of roads. When Saul found out about his army not properly draining the blood, he orders that a large stone be brought to him. And then each man was to slaughter his animal on the stone so that Paul could over, uh, Saul could oversee it. Now by slaughtering an animal on a flat stone, the blood would flow out of the meat to the edge of the stone and then drip off into the ground. This was the standard way blood drained away from the animal. 
sufficiently for it to be considered ritually clean in that era. The people understood the sin of what they had been doing as well as Saul did. But they were hungry. They were hungry due to their king's rash edict that they accepted the consequence of this sin as a price they were willing to pay so they could hurry up and eat. Now what a great lesson we can take for this, from, from this. For any leader of any kind, from a parent to a small business owner to a Fortune 500 CEO to a government official to a pastor or a rabbi, you know, when we put merciless, unreasonable, uncaring demands and requirements on those in our charge and they fail, we as leaders are at least as much as fault, at fault because we put them in a position where failure was a certainty. Parents can be too strict. Bosses can be too demanding. Congregation leaders too rigid too quick to evoke self-righteous and burdensome doctrines upon their people that go far beyond their, their, their biblical intent. The rabbis became infamous for this in the form of thousands of often burdensome, if not downright silly, traditions. Yeshua spoke out against these harsh doctrines and traditions and man-made edicts and he offered, instead, a return to the true intent of the Torah. Matthew 11.28 Come to me, all of you who are struggling and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Because I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. In verse 36, after the people were refreshed by eating and resting for a while, as Saul was pondering that day's events, he could not help have helped but recall the story of Joshua and his nocturnal pursuit of Israel's enemies several centuries earlier. So his proposal that the army put aside sleep that night and go after the fleeing remnant of the Philistines was willingly accepted by the rank and file. The priests that were with them, properly so, countered by saying, well, we should consult God here. Here is undoubtedly referring to the altar that Saul had built where they were currently resting. Saul naturally agreed, and so he asked two questions of God through the high priest. First, should he pursue the Philistines that night? And second, will he be victorious? But the Lord was silent. He gave no reply to Saul. Now we are again witnessing the use of the Urim and Tumim, sacred stones, by the high priest. You know, it's thought that these stones can essentially provide no more than a yes or a no kind of answer. Thus, when the high priest put his hand into the, the special pocket 
sewn into his ephod where the stones resided. Pulling one out one stone meant yes, the other meant no, essentially. So questions had to be phrased in a, a, a yes, no, true, false, either, or kind of a fashion. So exactly what the indication was that God provided no answer to his questions is, is, is involves speculation. Tradition says that one stone or the other would literally glow or shine, thus indicating God's decision. Now certainly it must be in the case before us that either the high priest was somehow supernaturally made aware that the Lord was withholding his oracle or indeed the stones themselves changed in some visible and obvious way when an answer was forthcoming but this time their state remained unchanged. When no answer was given the only possible explanation for such a divine silence was that some sin had been committed that had displeased the Lord. And thus he had pulled away from Israel. The only solution was to discover the sin. Punish the trespasser using God's justice system. And then to make proper atonement. Now, Shaul naturally didn't even think to look at himself. So in verse 38, he assumes that one of the army's leaders either personally sinned or knew of sin within their ranks. So he assembles his military officers and demands to know, okay, who's committed this sin today? This sin doesn't necessarily mean that Saul specifically knew what kind of sin had been committed. He only meant this sin, whatever it is, that's caused the Lord to withdraw. No one stepped forward to confess any sin. So Saul used the other standard religious method of the Hebrews of advancing towards the truth, casting lots. We're going to look at the results of what was essentially a divine trial next week.